Welcome back to the Der Show. I hope uh, those of you who celebrate uh, Passover uh, are having a good Passover. I'm I'm so full of matzah, you wouldn't believe it. But um, gefilte fish and matzah with a little bit of horseradish, to me, that's a gourmet meal. I was once asked by a Boston magazine if I had been sentenced to death and I was given a choice of a last meal, um, and was told I could go to five restaurants and have my last meal, which five restaurants would I go to? I turned it down because I didn't want to insult any of my favorite restaurants in Boston. But I think I think probably to fill the fish on a piece of what's called shmura matzah, that's kind of the hard matzah that's made by hand, with a little bit of um, horseradish, which is called chrein, um, uh, probably be included as one of the appetizers. In any event, I had a, we had a great, great uh, Seder with my, my family. And then I went to the house of, um, of a woman who I saved, she and her family from Romania. And it was a great Passover celebration because at my Passover table was a 90 something year old man and his daughter and grandchildren, uh, who I rescued from, from communism. Uh, back in the, I don't remember, the 70s or 80s. And, uh, you know, Passover is a celebration of freedom from bondage. And there it was. Uh, uh, I was, you know, their Moses. And and, and they were the, the people who were in bondage. And they came out and they really expressed uh, great appreciation. So we had, we had wonderful seders. I hope those of you who celebrated Easter had a meaningful, meaningful uh, Easter. And those of you who are celebrating uh, Ramadan uh, have a meaningful, meaningful Ramadan. I've celebrated Ramadan for many years with some of my Muslim students uh, at Harvard. It was always wonderful to compare the breakfasts that uh, uh, Muslims have every day of Ramadan with the breakfasts that Jews have uh, once a year for Yom Kippur. Um, uh, I've always enjoyed uh, celebrating other people's holidays. Um, for several years, I went to my friend Arthur Adala's uh, incredible Easter feast uh, at his uh, in-laws' home on Staten Island, uh, the place where the Trump case should be tried. You've heard me say that. And so we're coming to the end of the uh, of the holiday season, and so I hope it brought uh, joy and, and and meaningfulness to to many of you. I'm going to start today a little unusually uh, because of one letter <clears throat> that I got uh, last week before the holidays. We were talking about hush money, of course. Everybody's talking about hush money and non-disclosure agreements. And I mentioned the first payment of hush money in American history that we know about. I'm sure the rest of it hush money paid back in the 17th century as well. It's as old as, as human beings, but the most famous one, of course was the $1,300, the 1300 1300 an interesting 1% of what Donald Trump allegedly paid, $130,000. Uh, uh, of course, when you translate um, $1,790 to $2,023, the, the, the difference is not as striking. Um, Alexander Hamilton paid about $1,300, which was about a third of his salary as secretary of the, of the Treasury. Um, uh, Donald Trump and Alexander Hamilton, again, <clears throat> I don't seek to make comparisons ever, but they were both subject to extortion. Um, Alexander Hamilton by a woman named Maria uh, 
uh, uh, Reynolds and her husband, um, James Reynolds. And of course, uh, Donald Trump was subject to threats of extortion by Stormy Daniels and, and, and her, uh, her lawyers. You want to hear an interesting fact? I bet you nobody knew this fact. I didn't know this fact until I started doing research for this program. Guess who? Marie Reynolds, the extortionist, lawyer was. No, nah, no, nah, you'll never guess. Aaron Burr. You can't make this stuff up. You cannot make this stuff up. I don't know if uh, Miranda knew that when he wrote Hamilton, but at least according to Wikipedia, Aaron Burr became Maria Reynolds, the extortionist of Alexander Hamilton's uh, a lawyer. And then to make matters even more interesting, Alexander Hamilton was threatened and he gave the money, $1,300. But then somehow his letters got into the hands of his political opponents and James Monroe ultimately became president of the United States, apparently circulated some of the letters to uh, his friends, including Thomas Jefferson, fellow Virginian. And uh, again, you don't know this, even if you've seen Hamilton, Hamilton and Monroe came close to having a duel over this. And guess who decided that they shouldn't have a duel and persuaded them each to take a step back? Aaron Burr, the man who eventually killed Alexander Hamilton. Again, you cannot make this stuff up, but it's part of a history. And, um, and so what happened is um, there was no duel. Um, Monroe circulated. Jefferson had this guy named Callender, who was his kind of hitman. Um, I don't mean murderous hitman. Um, he was his media hitman. <clears throat> um, he was kind of his Roy Cohn in some ways. And, and so Callender um, um, decided to get even with Hamilton. Hamilton was starting to circulate rumors about Jefferson. Hamilton liked Jefferson. So Hamilton started circulating rumors about Jefferson and his affair with Sally Hemings, black slave, uh, while they were together in Paris, voluntary, but she was a slave, although she could have any at point uh, achieved her freedom in, in, in France, just walked into the consulate. She would have been free. She decided to stay with, with Jefferson. So <laughs> Monroe uh, and Jefferson uh, started to circulate some rumors uh, about Hamilton because Hamilton was circulating rumors about uh, Jefferson. So then Hamilton did either the smartest or dumbest thing in his life. Hamilton was the smartest, dumb founder of America or the dumbest, smart founder of America. He was brilliant. He was by and far the most creative, original thinker. Jefferson was the best educated um, and brilliant. But Hamilton exceeded Jefferson in his creativity and originality. You know, Hamilton invented the American economy and uh, did so much more to make uh, America the place it is today. But he was a first-rate schmuck. I mean, getting into a duel with Aaron Burr, who was a basically a sharpshooter from the Revolutionary War, a real, real hero, uh, just shortly after his own son had been killed in a duel. That's a schmucky thing to do. 
And uh, then he did something else. And that's a question that historians will debate forever. After he paid his $1,300, Hamilton uh, was extorted again by James Reynolds, not, not a nice man. Um, and, and Maria, not a nice woman, not victims. They had, she had a perfectly, perfectly voluntary adulterous relationship and then she decided to turn it into money. Sound familiar? Yeah, it sounds familiar. And so um, uh, Reynolds um, uh, threatened to make more disclosures and he threatened to say that the money that Jefferson, I'm sorry, that Hamilton used to pay Reynolds came from treasury funds. And actually Monroe um, and Jefferson led Calendar to believe that that might be true too. And so the rumors started circulating that not only was Hamilton guilty of having an affair, uh, bad enough, in back in those days, although believe me, people were having affairs back in, in those days, a, a lot of them, but that he had um, improperly taken funds from the treasury. Also, there was some hint of speculation in funds in order to pay the extortion from, from um, Reynolds. Well, Hamilton had it up to here and said, no, 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 no more of this. I'm going to come clean. And so he publishes a pamphlet, a pamphlet called the Reynolds pamphlet. Here it is. This is, believe it or not, the original copy. Um, it's not the only original copy. There are, I don't know, maybe 20, 30, 50 of them around in libraries, but this is one of the original copies, one of the very few original copies, published in 1797 in Philadelphia, printed uh, John Fino, um, and here's what it says. Observations on certain documents concerned in the history of the United States uh, for the year 1796, in which the charge of speculation against Alexander Hamilton, late Secretary of the Treasury, he had just resigned, is fully refuted, written by himself. And, and here it is in his own words. The spirit of Jacobinism is not entirely a new spirit has at least been clothed in a more gigantic body and armed with more. It goes on and on and on in, in the rhetoric of the um, 18th century. It's, it's a brilliant pamphlet, and it not only contains um, his refutation, but it also contains copies of the letters so that he could prove that he was extorted. And um, everybody, after reading this, came to several conclusions. One, Alexander Hamilton had committed adultery. Okay. Two, he had not used government funds. He had used his own money to be more precise, probably used his wife's money because Alexander Hamilton didn't really have any money, but he married, as all the founding fathers did, a rich woman. And so the Schuylers, who I am now distantly, distantly related to through the marriage of a cousin to a Schuyler. I think I had mentioned I had gone to a Schuyler wedding on Long Island. Um, and so uh, the money came from private funds, not public funds. So number one, he did commit adultery. Number two, he didn't use federal funds. He used his own money. 
Number three, he was never going to be president of the United States. Um, there was too much of a scandal around him. He was an obvious candidate for president of the United States in the 1800 election. It would have been a, a great, you know, a great three-way election, Adams. You know, Hamilton, as you probably know, got along with no one uh, except Washington, although he had some negative views about Washington. Washington was his mentor and his, you know, the man who elevated him to prominence, as you probably remember. I have a letter, a handwritten letter written by, signed by George Washington about how all the troops have to be inoculated against smallpox, handwritten by his then very young, I don't know, 22-year-old secretary named Alexander Hamilton. So Hamilton starts as Washington's secretary, becomes his adjunct, as a general at the age of, I don't know, 25, 26. Brilliant, brilliant strategist, but didn't get along with people. He had some negative things to say about Washington, although never never really publicly. A lot of negative things to say about Adams, who was a fe fellow member of the Federalist Party, um, um, but he hated uh, Adams. Adams hated him. He hated Jefferson. Jefferson hated him. He hated Burr. Burr hated him. And eventually, Hamilton was the kingmaker. He made Jefferson the president over Burr. Yes, remember, Burr cheated. The election was you vote for a ticket. You vote for Jefferson Burr. But Burr said, no, no, no. As many people voted for me as voted for Jefferson, even though they were voting for him for vice president. So he tried to become president. And you know from the play Hamilton, it didn't happen. Who, who made the difference? Hamilton. Hamilton said, look, I hate Thomas Jefferson. I don't like him. I don't like his policies. Uh, I certainly don't like his um, philosophy. Um, I don't like his uh, populism. I don't like his agrarianism. I don't like anything about him, but he's a man of principle, whereas Barr is not. So he threw the weight of the Federalist Party to the side of Jefferson. Jefferson becomes president. Burr does not. Ultimately, Burr becomes the first vice president ever charged with a crime. We're hearing a lot about the first president charged with a crime. We haven't heard anything about the first vice president charged with a crime, Aaron Burr, charged with a crime of treason. Great trial in front of John Marshall, who's the prosecuting attorney, Thomas Jefferson's cousin. You can't make this stuff up. And the jury comes back with a verdict. Not, not guilty, not guilty, but not proven. The Scottish verdict. Burr says, that's not acceptable. It's either guilty or not guilty. I want it to be not guilty. Marshall says, no, the jury has, has spoken. So uh, a little bit of American history. If those of you who get bored by history, how can you get bored by this stuff? I mean, thank you, Miranda, for uh, bringing Hamilton to so many people. Before that play ever came out, I knew a lot of this stuff, not all of it. And I was really, really interested. I mean, the history, the personalities, you know, the people, Abigail Adams, what a phenomenal woman she is. Dolly Madison, what a phenomenal woman she is. Uh, you know, George Washington's wife, Jefferson's wife who died young, and then Sally Hemming. These are amazing people. The Schuylers uh, and the men, the men, uh, the smart men who married rich women and were able to devote almost all of their time to creating America. Um, some of them practice law. I have Alexander Hamilton's papers, his legal papers, uh, a whole a whole study of them, uh, a bunch of legal papers. And he was a great lawyer. Jefferson, I've seen some of his uh, legal, legal papers. Uh, Madison, what a great constitutionalist he was, the father of our constitution. 
I mean, this stuff is absolutely amazing. I hope I'm not boring you. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. And so I collect this stuff. I go all over. I spend so much of my time going on auctions and, and, and you know, a thing like this. I've been trying to get the original Reynolds pamphlet probably for 20 years. I've tried many times and failed because I have limits on what I can afford to pay and what I'm willing to pay. I have a I had before I bought this, I had an 1870 version from the Hamilton Society, but this is the original version. So finally, I got it as I've gotten other things. And there are things I wish I had gotten, but I haven't gotten yet. I'm still young enough to buy a few more things before I die. My poor children and grandchildren who you know, have to figure out what to do with all this stuff. Um, my son, Elon, who's producer of the show, was with me when I bought the Jefferson letter and kind of he's a. Eh, kind of fellow fellow collector, so he's going to get some of this stuff and he'll enjoy it. He collects a lot of Houdini uh, stuff, a lot of Houdini autographs and tricks and books about magic. Um, uh, so he's more 20th century. I'm more 19th and 18th century. So uh, enough of the lesson for today on, on history. Let's spend a few minutes on the actual subject of this show, and then we'll Maybe if we have time, turn to Lennis or else we'll do the letters tomorrow. So I want to talk about judges. Who will judge the judges? You know, the old Roman saying, who will guard the guardians? Um, judges, I wrote in my first popular book, The Best Defense, are the weakest link in our American system of, of justice because mostly they're beyond accountability. Uh, they can't be held accountable. Take, for example, justices of the Supreme Court. They're not bound by the rules of ethics that... Uh, uh, other judges all over the country are bound by. And so we have this dispute going on now about Clarence Thomas. Should he have accepted the largesse of a very wealthy Republican businessman who has no business in front of the Supreme Court? And I take Thomas at his word. He seems like an honorable man. I take him at his word that he never discussed any Supreme Court business with this very wealthy guy, but flew on his jets, sailed on his yachts, ate his phenomenal food, drank his 1982 Bordeaux's, and uh, really partook. Not alone. He did it with Leonard Leo, who was the head of the Federalist Society, who does have an impact on who gets appointed to various Supreme Courts. He is presumably the architect of the judicial revolution that turned the Supreme Court from moderately center left to much more right um, today. Almost all the judges appointed by Republicans are vetted by the by the Federalist Society. Should Thomas have done it? Uh, should he have reported it? Um, was there a violation in his failure to report it? Apparently not. Apparently, until recently, there was no rule that required the reporting of friendship uh, uh, accommodations, etc. Now there are, and Thomas said he will he will report. But the Supreme Court ought to be bound by the same rules of ethics that bind the lower courts. There's a constitutional issue since there's separation of powers and the Supreme Court is one third of the three part government, an independent uh, part of the United States government. Can Congress <clears throat> pass laws that are binding on the Supreme Court? The answer, I think, is yes. Um, and um, there should be rules that bind Supreme Court justices. 
Would the same fuss have been made by the liberal press if it were not Justice um, uh, Thomas, if it were one of the icons of the liberal left? I can tell you, I know from personal experience, some of them have certainly lived the good life at the expense of wealthy peoples and wealthy corporations, many of them during the summers on both sides of the political spectrum, travel at the expense of others because they make very little money. I mean, they make very little money in the Supreme Court. I think it's less, I think it's less than a quarter of a million dollars. I don't mean very little. I mean very little by the standards of the expenses that some of them incur. But every summer they go to Europe, they participate in this convention and that convention, they go to various other places all on someone else's nickel. Would, if the same facts apply to somebody who is a liberal icon, would the media have made as much of a fuss about it? I leave that to you. I don't know the answer to that question, but it's worth asking. Let's turn now for at least a couple of minutes to uh, Judge uh, Juan Marchand. He is going to be the judge uh, who presides over the um, uh, Trump case. He shouldn't be. Uh, he should recuse himself. Why should he recuse himself? Uh, first of all, he made tiny, tiny, tiny contributions to um, 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 a couple of candidates, including presumably President Biden. Now, the rules of the bar do say that no judge should, quote, publicly endorse or oppose a political candidate. And so the question is, if you publicly give money, even if it's a small amount, are you endorsing that candidate? The argument can be made, yes, you are. And it doesn't say how much money you have to give to endorse and doesn't say what endorsement means. Uh, but when I give money to a candidate, no, I take that back. I, I don't endorse the candidate. I take that back. Let me tell you why I take that back. I have a policy of giving a few dollars to any candidate who is my student. So I have donated, I think I donated like a hundred dollars to Ted Cruz when he first ran for office. I think he ran for state solicitor general in Texas. And I think he wrote, if I think I remember correctly, he wrote me a cute note um, saying, uh, I don't know who's going to be hurt more if it becomes public that uh, you endorse me, whether I'll be hurt more or you'll be hurt more. But he expressed appreciation. So I have written, I've made contributions in small amounts <clears throat> to former students whose candidacies I don't endorse. Um, but who I want to wish well, because they're my former students and I'm proud of them. So, no, I don't think it constitutes an endorsement. But why then do I think that Judge Marshall should disqualify? There's too much there. There's too much there. There's the small amount of contribution, coupled with the fact that he previously presided over a case in which he played a role in persuading one of Trump's um, deputies, financial people, to turn state's evidence against him. The appearance, the appearance of, of justice there, I think is too great. Also, he wasn't selected out of the wheel. Um, as far as I know, the prosecution said it was a related case to the other, therefore it should be the same judge. The rule should be exactly the opposite. If it's a related case, he should be taken out of the wheel because he already has been involved in the case, but it's supposedly for judicial efficiency. Um, there are some issues relating to relatives of the judge. I don't ever want to hold people responsible for what their relatives do, because in my case, I don't want people held responsible for what I do. I have children and grandchildren who did not support my defending Donald Trump on the floor of the Senate, and I don't want to see them blamed for that. 
and I don't want to see myself blamed for the actions of my children, even though I don't think there's a single action that any of my children or grandchildren ever took that I don't, I don't support. Um, but when you combine it all together, and when you combine the fact that the case ought not to be tried in Manhattan, I think the better part of discretion would be for Judge Mushroom to disqualify and recuse himself and not wait for a motion to be made to have him recuse. Will he do it? No, he won't do it. I don't believe he'll do it. So one more, one more um, judicial issue, and then if we have time, we'll turn to some letters. So two cases have come down uh, recently on what some people call an abortion pill. I call it a birth. I call it a late birth control pill. Um, it's a pill that's taken early, early, early in the pregnancy before there's any indication that whatever you want to call it at that time, the zygote, uh, the fetus. Um, there are biological names for it, but it's at that point in time, it doesn't have a heartbeat, doesn't have a brain, uh, and you can take a pill and end the pregnancy. Is that really an abortion? Well, one judge says it is, and the abortion pill uh, is not valid. Um, and another judge said, no, the abortion pill is okay. So you have two absolutely conflicting opinions by two different judges, not juries. Juries are expected to come out with different opinions, but two judges. That pretty much automatically means that it's heading up to the Supreme Court because they're in different circuits. One of them is the District of Columbia and the other one is in the South somewhere. So you're going to get uh, conflicts within the cases unless the courts of appeals resolve the conflict and come out one way which generally means the Supreme Court will take the case. Now, how will the Supreme Court decide the case? They've already said that there is no constitutional right to an abortion, but is there a constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy at the very, very, very earliest stages? Certainly, justice, uh, the Chief Justice agrees there is. He wrote a concurring opinion. But um, there are five other justices, and we don't know. Um, we know that they think that an abortion beyond a certain period of time, whether it be 15 weeks or 10 weeks, um, can be regulated by the state, but can an abortion within the first days of pregnancy be regulated by the state? Uh, we'll see what the Supreme Court says about that. My prediction probably will uphold the ban if the ban was properly enacted, but I can't uh, really speculate and get into the minds of the justices. The vast majority of Americans believe that a woman has the right to terminate pregnancy at the very earliest stages. The vast majority of Americans believe that a woman does not have the right to terminate pregnancy at the very late stages when the child is really a child, um, but is still inside the mother's uh, belly. Um, and, um, and the child can be removed um, and be viable the vast majority of Americans say, no, you shouldn't be able to kill a viable child at that stage. The big argument is in the middle. The middle is getting smaller and smaller as viability expands and the ability to curtail the pregnancy also expands. So we'll see what the Supreme Court says. It's not really an attack on judges to point out that you have two judges with the same essential facts coming to different conclusions. Judges are human beings. They don't lose their humanness uh, when they uh, put on a robe. They're supposed to lose their ideological and political 
and partisan commitments when they put on a robe, but that's asking a lot of, of, of judges. So we're going to wait and see what uh, these judges decide and what the Supreme Court decides. Uh, a lot is at stake here. Um, my feeling is that if the Supreme Court were to decide that even essentially the morning after pill or the week after pill is can be prohibited by the state, the public will be outraged by that. And Congress would probably try to pass a law, a national law, permitting such abortions. Would that be upheld as constitutional? Okay, that's the next step in this continuing uh, fight uh, about uh, abortion. And remember, again, what I've said over and over again, do not confuse abortion rights with gay rights or anything like it. There is no no argument against gay rights that deserves to be called an argument. These are two people who, in the privacy of their home and marriage, decide to live together and be married. There is no countervailing consideration there except religious, which doesn't count. Under the First Amendment, you cannot establish religion uh, under the First Amendment. So there is no argument against gay rights. There is a substantial argument against abortion, one that I personally disagree with, but there is a fetus at a certain point in time. A fetus is more than a potential human being. At a certain point of time, it has characteristics of a human being. It has a heartbeat. It feels pain. There is a plausible argument that that fetus and the rights of that fetus have to be taken into consideration. In other words, gay rights, just the two-way street, uh, people who oppose it, people who favor of it, people who are opposed it have no business opposing it. It's not their business. Mind your own business is as sacred an American notion as almost any other concept of liberty. If you're a libertarian, you ought to believe in gay rights, even if you're a conservative, very conservative. Every libertarian, every civil libertarian should believe in gay rights. On the other hand, the abortion issue is triangular. It's triangular. You have the right of the mother, you have the power of the state, and then you have the fetus. And certainly the fetus can't be totally ignored. I don't buy the view of the extreme uh, on the pro-abortion side that says an abortion is just like removing an appendix. No, uh, appendix doesn't have a potential for life. And I don't agree with the view on... On the other side, that aborting uh, uh, a two-week-old fetus is the same as killing a two-week-old baby who's already been born. Both extremes um, have difficulty persuading any rational person of the legitimacy of their argument. And so, as usual, the big issue is who decides, uh, not what the decision is, because reasonable people could come to different decisions about abortion rights, not about gay rights. And I challenge any of you to come up with any argument against private gay rights or gay marriage. I'm not talking about curriculum, school, that's a different issue. I'm just talking about the very concept of, of, of private gay rights. So I didn't get the letters today. Instead, we talked a little bit about Hamilton. It's fun for me. I hope it was fun for you. Interested in seeing any of your letters about that, if you would like some more of that. Uh, I love it. I love American history. My wall is filled, not this room, but the other room, with 
uh, American history. I pass it by every day and it inspires me to be a better American. So uh, see you all tomorrow.